0: Good morning. I'm so blessed by all of the people that serve our church. Every time I get this, come and stand up here, I just feel already encouraged and strengthened and blessed, and I'm sure you do too. So grateful for all of you, uh, Ryan and Drew and the music team. Let me encourage you to encourage them. Turn to Hebrews chapter 2. Hebrews chapter 2. We're going to continue in our series called The Four Reasons for Christmas. We're trying to ask the question, answer the question, why did Jesus come to earth? And the first reason we saw last week is to restore humanity to what God originally intended. Now today I want to talk about another reason why we so desperately need Jesus to put flesh on, to become a human. You know, this world teaches people that identity is a choice. For example, hear this from psychologist Shatram Heshmat. He says, quote, We psychologists assume that identity formation is a matter of finding oneself. Defining oneself within a social world is one of the most difficult choices a person makes. Close quote. So I think this captures very well the prevalent thinking of our times. Even in this Christmas season the spirit seems to be of seems to be one of tolerant love. What is celebrated even during Christmas is this kind of vague spirit of love, a sort of unbounded free love. Christmas is just yet another opportunity to celebrate your choices and my choices. So today, identity boils down to self-discovery and choice. Who do you say that you are? Who do you want to become? Those are pretty comfortable questions, right? Because they put the ball in your court, you're in the driver's seat, and the choices, of course, are increasingly unlimited. That pertains to education or job or marriage or sexuality and even gender. And yet, the world's formula for identity is troubling to me, and I hope it's troubling to you, because choice and self-discovery are awfully dangerous, are they not? I mean, shouldn't we have a healthy skepticism of ourselves? Like, can we really trust ourselves? And what about God? If there is a creator God, should we not be concerned with how He has wired us, what He says about us and our identity? last week, we learned that God has given us an identity. We ought to bear His image and rule on His behalf and spread His rule and spread His fame by multiplying. But sin, of course, has corrupted those things, which means we struggle. We struggle to embrace our God-given identity. Now, the little church that received this letter, Hebrews, also struggled with identity. There was a pressure coming in, from kind of the Roman world for them to align with the state-recognized religion of Judaism, which is where they were coming from. And so there was these false teachers who were offering a gospel of works, which asked them, hey, who do you want to become? You're in the driver's seat. Just check off some boxes, obey these laws, and you can kind of slip back into Judaism and you'll be all fine and God will accept you. So this little church was tempted to find their identity in religious performance? Well, friends, for Christians, identity isn't a choice, is it? Identity is a merciful provision. Identity isn't self-discovery. Identity is new birth. Identity is resurrection. Identity is sonship. Let's read our passage now, Hebrews 2, starting in verse 10. Hebrews 2, starting in verse 10. For in bringing many sons and daughters to glory, it was entirely appropriate that God, for, for whom and through whom all things exist, should make the pioneer of their salvation perfect through sufferings. For the one who sanctifies and those who are sanctified all have one Father. That is why Jesus is not ashamed to call them brothers and sisters, saying, I will proclaim your name to my brothers and sisters. I will sing hymns to you in the congregation. Again, I will trust in him. And again, here I am with the children of God. Uh, Excuse me, here I am with the children of God gave me. This is God's holy and inspired word. Thanks be to God. Here's the main point of the passage. You'll see it in your notes, and you'll also see it on the screen the son of God became the son of man so that the sons of men may become the sons of God. Some of you probably heard that before. The first time I heard that sentence, which I think is really the main idea in this passage, was from my grandmother in Sri Lanka. So we were, you know, eating mangoes and she was talking to me about Jesus. She was a very godly woman and she, she gave me this sentence and I just, for probably the first 15, 20 years of my life, wow, she's really smart. You know, she captures a lot of good biblical teaching. Well, it turns out that my grandma was inspired by something that C.S. Lewis said. I did a little bit more research. It wasn't even C.S. Lewis. C.S. Lewis apparently was inspired by something that John Calvin said. So we got to give credit to where it's due. Not my grandma, not C.S. Lewis. This sentence originates actually from John Calvin. And I really think it's a beautiful sentence, is it not? The son of God became the son of man, so that the sons of men may become the sons of God. That's what this passage is about. And um, I told Drew before coming up, I'm really excited about this message because of the themes that we see here. And I want to also give credit where it's due, speaking of, um, there's a number of pastors and scholars that I have read that have helped me think about the doctrine of adoption in particular. One is a guy named Daniel Trayer. Another is a guy named Michael Reeves. One of the pastors that's actually helped me to think about it, he's a friend of mine, he's a friend of yours, many of you. His name is Ryan Broadhurst. And he's uh, he's helped me to think carefully about this too. So I want to I want to just share their names. The first two names, Daniel Trayer and Michael Reeves, are excellent scholars on this doctrine. The Son of God became the Son of Man, so that the sons of men may become the sons of, Of God. Now, it's easy, I think, to see this emphasis of sonship in our passage. It's really kind of the language is littered everywhere, right? So you look at verse ten. Notice right away it says, "For in bringing many sons and daughters to glory." There it is. Verse eleven at the end of it it says, "Brothers and sisters," and then it says it talks about having one father. And then into verse twelve it says, "Brothers and sisters again." And then verse thirteen there's a reference to us being children, God's children. So this morning, morning, I want to show you through this passage, the absolute wonder and beauty of Christian sonship and adoption. Why did Jesus come? The second reason in this section of scripture is to make us God's children, to make us God's children. Two points. Here's the first. I want to point out to you from this passage in the opening couple verses, the nature of our sonship, the nature of our sonship. And again, verse 10 is really the point of this passage. God is bringing many sons and daughters to glory. Now, this connects really well with last week's passage and focus. Why did Jesus come to give us a new humanity to restore God's original intention for us? And that's where when we see that word glory, it's kind of like he's double-clicking on the section above in Psalm 8, In Genesis 1, and he's saying, listen, God had an intention for you. It's summarizing that word glory, and Jesus' coming was to restore that. But I want you to notice in this opening line, in verse 10, there's a little bit more color here. He introduces this idea of sons and daughters. Literally, it says sons. It doesn't say sons and daughters. It says sons. Now, why not sons and daughters? Well, the writer of Hebrews isn't leaving out women by saying sons. He hasn't forgotten about them. Just the opposite, in fact. He's using language that in the first century Roman world refers to the special privilege given only to male sons. And here, Hebrews applies it to all believers, men and women. So Christian women shouldn't resent being called sons, just like Christian men shouldn't resent being called the bride of Christ. These are metaphors, right? So then they're, they're, they're chock full of meaning and insight, and they've got power to them. But don't be offended, ladies, and don't be offended, men. And these metaphors are used not to limit our identity, but actually to expand our identity. All Christians, men and women, are, according to the writer of Hebrews, called God's sons. And thus, they enjoy all the privileges and promises and rights of spiritual sons. Now, what does it mean to be a son of God? Well, I think first of all, it's tied to image bearing. We are now part of God's new humanity. Just like firstborn sons resemble their fathers, we Christians as sons share a resemblance with our heavenly father. But I think it's also tied to the idea of spiritual inheritance. Just like firstborn sons have an inheritance, we too, through Jesus, have this unfathomable spiritual inheritance stored up for us in heaven, as Jesus would say, unimaginable blessings, unimaginable riches that we have access to in some ways today, but especially tomorrow into the next age. So there is this kind of opening salvo of truth here in this opening line, and it must have been deeply encouraging to this fledgling little church. The writer of Hebrews is essentially saying, listen, you might be small, you might be struggling, you might feel pressured but do you see what God has made you? You are sons with a restored glory, with a new inheritance. Brothers and sisters, I don't know your present discouragements and disappointments with life. No matter what it is, this truth can be a healing salve for you. You are sons of God. You are sons of God. Nothing will ever change that. Nothing can compete with that. Nothing is more valuable than that. So, sonship is the goal, but how do we get there? And that's what kind of the rest of these uh, phrases in the next couple of verses, I think, explain. Notice verse 10, it continues on, "...for in bringing many sons and daughters to glory, it was entirely appropriate that God, for whom and through whom all things exist, should make the pioneer of their salvation perfect through suffering." Now, this verse is jam-packed with truth. Notice the language, it was entirely appropriate or it was entirely fitting. And what he's saying is that Jesus' sufferings, his cross-suffering in particular, is the most fitting and most God-worthy way of salvation. And why is that? Well, it's fitting because, first of all, this work of salvation fits God's relationship to the universe. Notice it says, God for whom and through whom all things exist. So God is the goal, and He is the author of creation. And correspondingly, Jesus is the author and goal of salvation. The work of creation is entirely the Lord's work. The work of salvation is also entirely the Lord's work. Just as God meticulously pours Himself into the work of creation, so the author of salvation, Jesus, pours Himself through His suffering to save us. You know some people believe that a suffering savior does not fit with this idea of a sovereign god. It doesn't jive. A god who suffers must be a weak god. Well the writer here is arguing the exact opposite points. Do you want to see the character and the power of God? Sure. Start with creation. Turn your face like an astronomer to the Milky Way. Let your mind go 600 trillion miles to the edge of that galaxy and and visit the neighboring galaxy. So yeah, yeah kind of go there but 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 as you do that, you're going to see something of him for whom and through whom all things exist. That's a good starting place, but don't stop there. You must look to God's final word, and that, of course, is his son, Jesus. That's where things really blow up. That's where things really culminate and climax and crescendo. That's why we sang that song just a few minutes ago, Come Behold This Wondrous Mystery. That's a song that captures kind of the crescendo, the entire Bible that lands in Jesus. Friends, Jesus, in Jesus or with Jesus, you have an even greater display of God's power and His character than the cosmos holds. Now, notice it's also fitting because this work of salvation gives us a perfect Savior. You see that the, at the end of verse 10. God, made, uh, God the Father made Jesus the pioneer of our salvation. The word translated pioneer is archagos. You can hear archetype from that. This is this really cool concept. I, I want you to get this. The idea here is trailblazing. So the New Testament presents Jesus as the firstborn of a new creation. Uh, of the first man of God's new humanity. Adam Adam was God's first man of the old creation. Jesus is God's first man of a new creation. We all have Adam as our father, but as Christians, Jesus becomes our new head. And so when Jesus put on flesh in a manger, when Jesus took on humanity, God's new creation dawns. He became the head of, Of this new humanity. And so it kind of opens up a trail for us. It's like the picture of a mountain climber who goes ahead of others. By the way, I'm drawing from my years of extensive mountain climbing abilities. So I'm thinking about mountain climbers here. So, you know, it's it's like the picture of a mountain climber uh, who goes ahead of others. What does this mountain climber do? He's chipping away at footholds. He's inserting pitons. He's extending the rope to Um, his partners down below, Jesus takes us in his wake, bringing many sons to glory. That's what he's doing. He shows us what it looks like to be human. And in so doing, we become a son of God. Now, you're probably wondering, uh, by the end of verse 10, you're probably wondering what it means that Jesus was made perfect through sufferings. It's an important question, right? How can Jesus, the eternal Son of God, who has always existed in utter perfection, who is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of the Father's nature, how can He be made perfect? I don't know. Maybe you guys can ask Pastor Ryan in the lobby later. It's a hard question. Let me give it a shot. I think context is... You got to read that whole sentence. What's going on in that whole sentence? Well, how did Jesus become the pioneer of salvation? Notice it says, through suffering. And so, yes, Jesus was sinless, but as he lived, as he suffered, the full display of his perfection came into view. He needed to be tested on this earth. He needed to be tested, and of course he passed the test. He lived a perfect life in order to become the perfect sacrifice for our sins. Mike Mason beautifully states the significance of this. He says, quote, in Jesus, the centerpiece of the human race, the wild tangent of all the frayed and decrepit flesh of this fallen world touches perfectly the circle of eternity. Striking poetical language right there. I think it's really helpful. And what occurs as a result of this kind of decrepit flesh touching the divine? Well, Jesus becomes the trailblazer of our salvation. That's kind of the logic of this passage, in particular, verse 10. Now, now the next sentence, verse 11, notice, it shows us more about how we become sons of God. It says, for the one who sanctifies, that's a reference to Jesus, and those who are sanctified, that's a reference to Christians, all have one Father. That's God the Father. And so, When we put our faith in Christ, we are united to Jesus spiritually. And this means we become sanctified. We are set apart. We're given this kind of holy designation. We join his family as new creations, as new children. Particularly, we get adopted into God's family as sons. Galatians 4, which was read earlier, is super helpful. Really, really captivating verse. Listen again. When the time came in completion, when the time came to completion, God sent his son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those under the law, so that we might receive adoption as sons. Now, Paul could have just said, so that you will become sons and daughters. Why did he say adoption? Why did he choose adoption? Well, it's helpful to consider the first century context and Roman adoption practices in particular. So, how many of you have seen Ben-Hur. Old Ben-Hur. Not the new one. Don't don't bother with the new one. Charlton Heston. Okay. So with Jenny and I were with some friends yesterday. We were talking about our top five movies. Ben-Hur is certainly in my top five. Excellent movie. You got Charlton Heston in there. And uh, it's a story about a former Jewish prince and he becomes a slave and there's all kinds of uh, interesting uh, moments there. And then he's adopted uh, in this great turn of events. He's adopted by a Roman proconsul. And it's this beautiful scene. He's at a party, very moving scene. And uh, he's he's kind of made to be this guy's son. And so we have to understand that in the Roman world, a childless, wealthy man could adopt one of his servants. And at the moment of adoption, the slave ceases to be a slave and receives a new name and all the financial and legal privileges of being a son. But here's the crazy thing. You could disinherit your biological heirs You could not disinherit your adopted heirs. Isn't that interesting? So in Galatians, Paul is emphasizing the permanence of our spiritual adoption. We are forever God's children. Friends, salvation isn't just Jesus unlocking the doors to your cell after decades of solitary confinement, and he hands you a couple bucks and he tells you, go figure it out. No, Jesus rescues us when we are on death row. He ships us home. He throws a parade for us. He hangs a medal around our neck, and he invites us into the very living room of God because we are now family. It's not just that God coldly conveys a not guilty verdict on you. It's God tenderly saying to you, you are now mine. You are mine. So these are just a little bit of the mechanics of sonship and spiritual adoption. But I'm going to move a little bit now to the next few verses and phrases. And what the writer of Hebrews does next is show us the beauty of our sonship and the beauty of spiritual adoption. So put your eyes on the last part of verse 11 and going into verse 13. Why is this so beautiful? Why is this so significant? I mean, does it make a difference for you on a Monday morning or Wednesday night? That's what we're gonna talk about next. Let me read these verses for you by way of reminder. That is why Jesus is not ashamed to call them brothers and sisters, saying, I will proclaim your name to my brothers and sisters. I will sing hymns to you in the congregation. Again, I will trust in him. And again, here I am with the children God gave me. I'm so thankful that upon the third try, I read that right. Sometimes, you know. Notice first, Jesus is not ashamed to call us his brothers and sisters. It's true. We are children of the first Adam. And in Adam, we've acted shamefully. We've been vulnerable to sin and death and destruction. Sin in our lives results in two things. First of all, it results in the guilty verdict. Secondly, it results in a pollution, a filth that is upon our lives. So we are guilty, but we are also polluted by sin. And so how in the world can Jesus say here through the writer of Hebrews, how can he say that he is unashamed of you and me? Here's the answer. Because on the cross, Jesus not only bore our guilt, he bore our shame. And when we become children of God, Jesus takes away our guilt and he takes away our shame. I recently heard a story uh, from television of a powerful, wealthy, influential man who was gathering some people in his home. In walks this terribly downtrodden, homeless man into this guy's home. You know, the whole nine yards. So he's smelly, he's got tattered clothes, no shoes. And and as he approached the powerful man, what was most noticeable about him was this, this hunch. He was ashamed. He had very little human dignity. He was robbed of his humanity. But here he stood before this man. And what did this powerful man do for him? He snapped his fingers, he called his man over, and he got him cleaned up. He gave him new clothes. He gave him new shoes. He gave him a shower. And then, very quickly, it was noticeable how the man stood tall in his new clothes. This is what God does for us, friends, through Jesus. He snaps his fingers. He calls his man over to give us dignity. He doesn't only take off our ready clothes. He gives us new clothes. God makes us his own, his children. And so now we can stand tall, confident in his grace, confident in his love. Listen, friends, Jesus is not reluctant or ashamed to call you his brother or his sister. He calls us brothers and sisters with all of his heart with a fervor of love, with earnest, sweet conviction. How this must have brought healing to this little church, you know? And I just wonder how this might bring you and I healing today. If you are a Christian, Jesus is not ashamed of you. He's not ashamed to call you brother and sister. The writer of Hebrews then leverages a few, notice, Old Testament passages to defend that claim. He starts with Psalm 22, which Uh, Scott read for us earlier, and that psalm starts with a note of suffering and sorrow and then ends with a note of triumph. It's interesting because Jesus quotes the beginning part of the psalm when he's on the cross. He says, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? That's kind of where that psalm starts, and Jesus quotes that, but now the later part of the psalm is quoted. Notice it says, I will proclaim your name, Yahweh, To my brothers and sisters, I will sing hymns to you in the congregation. Notice how now the, the congregation is in view. You know, this is a piece I think the world often misses. Christian identity uniquely is both vertical and horizontal. It's grounded in your relationship with God, but then quickly spills over into the church. Jesus makes us God's children, and then naturally we become siblings of one another, right? Christian identity pushes us to think beyond just me to we. Our core identity, listen, our core identity is sons or son or daughter, and then brother or sister. That's our core identity, the very core of who you are. You are a son or a daughter of God, and then, therefore, as a result, horizontally, you are a brother or sister of one another. And it's this new we. That Jesus starts to speak of here. Notice how Jesus declares this new we, to this new we, excuse me, what God is like, and then leads them in singing praise. You see that? Really interesting. You know, every Sunday, this this is what happens. Jesus leads family worship here on Sunday mornings. You know? Every time we gather, Jesus proclaims Yahweh. Uh, He proclaims Yahweh to us, and then he leads us in a worshipful response. And I think this is the proper order of worship. First, we understand something about God, and then we respond with appropriate worship. You know, why do we sing, some of you have asked me, why do we sing such robust songs with all these verses and words, and like my mind is like, "Ah." well, here's why. We need to understand something about Yahweh first, I will build my life on you. I mean, if I walked into this church on Sunday mornings and if I just sang those words, okay, where it's all about my commitment and I haven't even defined the you, well, first of all, I'm not there. I don't know about you, but I'm not there yet. Somebody tell me something about this God first and then invite me and lead me to worship him. That's exactly what Jesus is doing here. So if you're wondering why we sing these robust lyrics is because we want to put in your mouth truths about Yahweh first and then say, okay, let's respond. I hope that makes sense. Apparently, we are not the ones preaching the sermons and leading the singing. Okay, of course, we're the instruments, right? Of course, that's true. But by his spirit, Jesus, according to this passage, Jesus is our worship director and Jesus is our preacher if we have ears to hear. John Calvin said it this way, quote, this teaching is the very strongest encouragement to us to bring yet more fervent zeal to the praise of God when we hear that Christ leads our praise and is the chief conductor of our hymns. So let me ask you this question, kind of silly, but illustrative. How would you sing if you knew that Jesus was leading the singing? Jesus up front, he's on the keys. He's looking out at you. He's leading the singing. How would you sing? Or how would you listen if you knew that Jesus was the one standing here preaching to you? You know, you might maybe sit in the front row, and you might have your Bible open, and you might have some notes, and you're scribbling furiously, right? Listen, friends, there is a real sense in which by the Spirit, Jesus does these things for us every Sunday when his word is opened up by whoever. He shows up more as his word is opened up. And he shows us, he shows us more of God's fatherliness and then leads us to worship in response. Notice two more quotes in verse 13. These little quotes, these are both taken from Isaiah 8. And in Isaiah 8, the prophet is declaring that he will wait on God and trust God, even though his message won't get a response. So the writer of Hebrews identifies Jesus with this prophet Isaiah. And it kind of makes sense because Jesus is a messianic prophet who fulfills the ministries, in some ways, of past prophets like Isaiah. So because Jesus trusted and Jesus obeyed and Jesus fulfilled his ministry on earth, now we Christians can be God's children. That's kind of what he's thinking here. We have a father in god we have a father in god and i just want to spend the next several minutes before we close up here inviting us just to marvel at that reality because of christmas because jesus came to earth we have god as our father this is why we pray our father every day as jesus invited us to pray This is what sets Christians apart from the rest of the world. We can call God Father, just as Jesus himself does. It's not just one way to relate to God. It's the way to relate to God. He is our Father. Listen, friends, God has always been a Father to his creation and a Father to his Son. It's not that God does Father as a day job, and then in the evenings he goes back to just being plain old God. He is always Father. He creates as a father. He rules as a father. He saves and serves as a loving father. And this means that God must be, in all he does, relational and life-giving and tender. He's never not fatherly. And so when you think about God, think about all his ways as beautifully fatherly. Fatherly. Now, human fathers have a special role in our lives, don't they? There's a privilege to being a father. It sets the tone for how our kids will view God someday. So if you're a dad here, I'm a dad, you're called to live and love your kids in such a way that when they learn that God is their father, they will only smile. What a privilege that is. But of course, some of us didn't smile when we learned that God is a father. Some of us find it difficult to think about God as father. Maybe you and your dad didn't get along. Maybe you didn't know your father. Maybe he was emotionally distant. Maybe he was a scary authoritarian, always wagging his finger at you, always looking over your shoulder. Nothing you did was ever good enough. And when you messed up, there was always strings attached. You know, I forgive you, but. I forgive you. But you better not do that again. I forgive you, but how does this make me look? I forgive you, but you're going to pay for this. Friends, there are no I forgive you buts with our Heavenly Father. Our Father doesn't hold things over your head, He doesn't mock your weakness or kick you when you're down. He's not secretly bitter with you. God never tires of you coming to Him in desperation. He's never irritated with your weakness. He's never put off by your neediness. In Galatians chapter 3, Paul distinguishes between the spirit of slavery and the spirit of adoption. Two spirits at work, sometimes in, 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 in even Christians, they can kind of go back to the spirit of slavery instead of enjoying the spirit of adoption. And the spirit of slavery says something like, you know, I messed up, and my dad's going to kill me. The spirit of adoption says, I messed up. And I'm going to call that one operates out of a posture of fear, the other out of relational confidence and love. One is about karma. The other is about grace, right? Most people in our culture today operate on a karma-based worldview. You know, good people get good things for doing good things. Bad people get bad things for doing bad things. That's just kind of how the universe works. You know, you scratch someone's back and you're going to get something back. And if you don't, then you're not going to get anything. Friends, with karma, you get what you deserve. With the gospel, Jesus gets what you deserve. And you get what he deserves. You get his father as your father. Think about that. It reminds me of a story uh, of Professor Timothy Paul Jones, and I think it was probably about four or five years I shared this story here at Faith Church. It's just um, very moving to me. He had three daughters. His middle daughter was adopted by another family before she came into his family, and that prior family had good intentions, never uh, though really integrating that adopted daughter in with the biological kids. And with this first family, whenever they'd go vacation in Disney World, they'd leave the adopted daughter with a friend for some reason. And the girl thought, I must have done something wrong. By the time Timothy Paul Jones and his wife got her, she'd heard all about Disney, but she'd never been to Disney World. And as soon as they found that out, they made plans to take her to Disney World, of course. But then as the time got near, the prospect of going to Disney World produced this kind of devilish behavior about her. She was stealing food and lying a lot and whispering insults that are carefully crafted to kind of jab at her siblings. And so as time got closer, her behavior actually got worse. And so Timothy pulls his daughter on his lap. And she says, I know what you're gonna do. You're not gonna take me to Disney. A thought actually hadn't crossed his mind. Downward spiral kind of made sense of her behavior. She knew she couldn't earn her way, and she had already failed that test. She was living in such a way that placed her as far from Disney as possible. And he was tempted to turn her fear into his advantage. If you don't start behaving better, we're not going to take you. But he didn't cave to that. He told her, is this trip something that we're doing as a family? She nodded are you a part of our family? She nodded. Well, then you're going. There may be some consequences because of some of the things you've just done, but you are a part of this family. And from that point on, as you might imagine, her behavior actually got worse. But the first evening in the hotel room after day one of Disney, there was a different response. She was tired and, you know, kind of the months-long facade slowly faded. And he prayed for her. And he asked her, how was your first day? And she said, I finally got to go to Disney. And it wasn't because I was good. It's because I'm yours. Friends, isn't this the message of the gospel? isn't this the message of Christmas? We can call God Father. We can be his children, not because we are good, but because we are his. Not because of our own goodness or how hard we worked or our religious performance or lack of performance or whatever, but because God made us his own by sheer grace. So if you're a Christian, You are his son. You are his child. And this is the most important thing about you. Not your weight or your height or your skin color. Not your job or your degree or the number of letters after your name. Not your social status or your likability or your popularity. Not your sexuality or your gender. Not your academic prowess or your ministerial accomplishments. You can enjoy God as your father and Jesus as your elder brother and new siblings in your church, not because you are good, but because you are his. Because God did all the work through his son to make us his sons and daughters. If you're not a Christian here today, uh, just about everything I've spoken to you about today is actually not for you. Not yet, at least. You are on the outside of this family and this sunshine. There is an inside and there is an outside with Jesus. You either have new clothes or you're still wearing those ratty clothes. You either have your adoption papers signed by the blood of Jesus or you are a spiritual orphan with little hope. I want you to feel, at least for a moment, the coldness of that. There is an inside with Jesus. There is an outside. But today, if you put your faith in elder brother Jesus, if you repent of your sins, if you follow this trailblazer, the trailblazer of this new humanity, you can join our spiritual family. You can enjoy God as your father. The son of God became the son of man so that the sons of men may become the sons of God. Amen. Let's take a moment now to ponder the passage and prepare our hearts for the Lord's Supper.